It's Vesper. You know, I didn't work in mortgages. I didn't work in credit. The, the crisis to me was like for anybody else, it happened over there and, I, and the shockwaves hit me. Um, but I guess, you know, for some people, because, because I don't know, I was closer to ground zero. I somehow <laughs> affiliated with those who, who may or may not have pulled the, um, pulled the pin on that explosion. I don't know. Um, but he was, a, he was a few levels down. He was like two levels down, I think, from the head of the, um, of the whole hacienda, who is now the head of the central bank, which is a whole other story because one of the reasons he's the head of the central bank is because of the deal he did with us and how much money it made, and it gave him a great reputation, and it gave him a chance to, to go on and do the next thing he wanted to do, which was run the central bank of Mexico, which he now does. So um, it was him and, a, oh gosh, two or three other um, people on his side, there was me, it was the salesperson, saleswoman, and uh, we had an investment banker there. So it was probably like six or seven people in the room, you know, all around a big long conference table. The big guy that we're trying to convince at the head of the table obviously comes in last after everybody else has been chatting mostly in Spanish the whole time. I, don't, I was the only one there who doesn't speak Spanish, so, um, so he comes in and then things get going. In the palace? Yeah, in the, in, the, in the National Palace, which, by the way, is very impressive on the outside, and you have to go through, guy, you know, lots of guys with machine guns and get, you know, x-rayed and scanned and everything else, but once you get inside, the actual, <clears throat> the actual offices are, are pretty um, shabby. You know, it's like, it's old carpeting, it's, it's couches with the foams, you know, coming out, it's cheap, you know, it's kind of, you know, drop ceilings and... You know, it's not a, it's a government office. Like even government offices in, in rich countries don't usually look that great. And this is not a, it's not a rich country. You know, when he didn't agree to do it at that point, in that first meeting, but he was very interested. And what I've learned in my time and all the time I spent on Wall Street is there's basically two kinds of presentations to clients. One is <clears throat> where they let you go through the whole thing and then politely ask some questions at the end and then see you on your way, that's not a good meeting. <laughs> then there's the other kind, which is they stop you somewhere in the middle, probably on page three, and they start asking lots and lots of questions and they take control of the whole thing and you're just kind of scrambling to keep up. That means they're really, really intensely interested in talking to you and forget about the book unless you need to make reference to a chart. When's Mexico doing the deal? Are they doing it now? Is it happening now? I heard it's happening now. I heard it's not happening now. That kind of thing. Everybody wants to know because it has impact. This is the most famous deal in the commodities market. Everybody knows about it. The bank, as well as the guy who ran the business, were intent on making commodities, the Barclays commodities business, the biggest and best in the world. You can't be the biggest and best in the world if you don't have the biggest, best deal in the world. A lot of it was just pride of ownership. You know, it's in the papers. You know, whether or not you ever even admit to doing it, people know. They know by your activity in the market, and they know that you're the big fish now.
tesoro. Un tesoro escondido debajo del fondo del mar. El petróleo es nuestro tesoro y es una riqueza inmensa que pertenece a todos los mexicanos de hoy y de mañana. This is a country and by their constitution, the oil in their country and their gas also is owned by the people. Something like a third of their federal budget is paid for by oil exports. So imagine if they had a really bad year, then that's going to go directly to the, to the government's bottom line, and it's going to directly impact their ability to pay for all these social programs that the government does, mainly for poor people, and therefore they would, you know, they'd have to cut those programs, which would be politically, you know, um, you know a horrible event. And so the politicians have a lot of motivation. So we sold Mexico insurance on its oil revenues so that its government could meet its budget for the following year and be able to pay for the social programs that they pay for using their oil export money. Let me just explain the oil market in terms of size. A typical deal is 100,000 barrels or 50,000 barrels. Those are small you know, market-sized deals, a few hundred thousand barrels. Those get traded all the time with airlines or refiners or hedge funds or other banks. You know, bread and butter stuff. Big deals are a few million barrels. And those are, you know, those happen, for us, they would happen a few times, a couple times a month. We were a big business. We did some big deals a couple, three times a month. What we would call elephant deals are like 10, 20 million barrels and, you know, something like that. The biggest deals I knew of at that point were that big. Well, this was a deal that was 200 and, well, over 300 million barrels. So it's like 10 to 20 times an elephant deal. And this is all supposed to be kept quiet on the trading floor because nobody else is supposed to know about it. It's such a big deal. It has a code name and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, generally... We're doing it, at that point, we're doing like Yahoo chat. Like she's a couple rows away from me on the trading floor. A little signal co you know, comes up my Yahoo chat. Price now, please. You know, whatever. And I know what it is, you know. In, in price in five, meaning five million barrels. I calculate, I type back something to her. A few seconds will go by and she'll type back, nothing done. Now, nothing done means we didn't do a deal. Does it mean that they're not yet really live? Does it mean that somebody else won it? We don't know, we're in the dark. We're, we're, so much of this is in the dark and that's, that's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate. They think about the bankers as being in charge and you know, it's really, you know, in a case like this, the client's in charge. <laughs> the client knows much more than you do. They're talking to lots of banks who are all kind of in the dark. I felt like I was in this dance with Goldman. Like I found after, you know, a few quotes where we started, you know, I won and they won, and we were kind of right on the same price. I found that they kind of moved off it a little bit and therefore I could move on. And I could just stay where I am and just try to win everything, but that wouldn't be the smartest move. So there's a little bit of a game theory thing going on here where they're, they're backing off and like, oh, I can back off too. And I'm only intuiting this. I have no, I, I don't know what their numbers are. I just know that 
you know, you play around. This is why you do some random things like throw in three cents, do this, do that, you know. The salesperson's, she's talking to some relatively junior execution person in the central bank oftentimes. Sometimes she's talking to the big trader, but a lot of times she's just talking to his assistants, people like that, and she's just doing everything she can to woo them and be in their good graces and kind of nudge them a little and get little bits of information, like, you know, to get some sense. Did, did the trade happen today? Did it not happen? Are you guys busy today? Are you going to be staying after hours? You know, this kind of thing. Anything she could tell me, anything. You're just desperate. I don't remember exactly what we made, but it was more than 20 or 30 million. It was probably 40 or 50 million on that, which was a reasonable amount. It wasn't, it wasn't extortion by any means. It was a lot of risk. At some point, they tell you they're done. <laughs> they don't just keep asking you to quote forever. But at some point, they say, we're done. Thank you very much. And you look at how much you won. And in that case, in 2007, we had won 110 million barrels. And everything was cool, you know, which is the way we wanted it to be. And it was great. And it was all celebrated. And we went down and had a celebratory dinner in Mexico City and did all that stuff. And then we were like, let's do it again next year, only more. <laughs> if we can, right? Why not? Let's go. Here we go. 20, 19, 18, 3, 2, happy do. As we arrive at iPhone's first birthday, we're gonna take it to the next level. America's second largest bank is buying countrywide financial at a bargain basement price. Amid mounting losses, rising mortgage defaults, shareholder lawsuits. It's day two of the strike by television and screenwriters and already the strike is having an impact on the primetime TV schedule. I can no more disown him then I can disown the black community. Today's announcement from Bear Stearns and the New York Fed coming as a shock to Wall Street. Some are getting worried about the cost of helping Fannie and Freddie. This Wall Street crisis is quickly becoming a Main Street crisis. Because there seem to be so many things going wrong at once. The confetti is falling over a million cheering and singing. Welcome to 2008. There it is in bright lights. Come on, you guys can sing this. Barry, you know this song. It's definitely a bummer, you know, to feel like, to get a, at least with some people, to get a certain look from them when you say what you do or what you did. Um, you'd like, you'd like, like when I first went into to banking, I'm sure there's always been people who didn't think much of investment banking, derivatives. I wasn't really even aware of that. I just really did. Maybe I was a little naive. I just thought of it as like any other job where you make, you know, no more or less ethical or moral than making cars or making computers. You're just making stuff. You're participating in the economy or, you know, it's up to other people whether they buy it or not. Full, everything's fully disclosed, There's, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, how can you generalize across a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know? First of all, the crisis itself was very complicated in what happened. And bad behavior on the part of bankers, some bankers in some segments of banking, 
is part of that story, but it's just a part. You could argue about how big or small. I happen to think it's just, you know, call it a sixth or a third or something. There's added, It's a major factor, but there's several major factors that went into it. Um, but, you know, what does that have to do with me? It's kind of what, you know, I can irrationality just frustrates me so like anybody that's why I've sought like anybody who would like talk to me about this and have a reasonable conversation but what it seems to come down to is you know just a very simple-minded kind of blanket it's just so many I never really liked you guys to begin with you do stuff that I don't really understand and that doesn't seem to be productive and you're kind of in it for the money anyway. So let's just add this to the list of things, reasons I don't like you. And, <laughs> and you probably caused this because of all these other reasons that I don't like you. And, uh, and there's no arguing with that. You know, there's nothing I can do with that. So Remember when we referred to the slow drip of economic bad news as Chinese water torture? As of yesterday, the news resembles nothing so much as waterboarding. After riding out wars and depressions for almost 160 years, Lehman Brothers bought the farm. Another banking sequoia, Merrill Lynch, sold itself to Bank of America. The biggest insurance company in the world totters on the brink. My boss came over and he's the one who told me, can I talk to you in an office? And he took me off the floor and he said, you know, uh, this is you know, really serious. This is not just a one, two-day event. They're taught, you know, the, the, the rumor is that Morgan Stanley is about to go down next and then Goldman Sachs. And to hear this, you know, Goldman Sachs is the competitor I'm, I'm uh, thinking about all the time and, the, you know, the pr premier investment bank in the world, arguably. To hear that, it's just sort of like, if that's really what we're talking about, then everything's falling apart. Um, and it was just so disorienting to hear that. And then, you know, I went back to my desk and I remember looking at my risk if the market kept going down because, you know, hearing that, seeing what was going on, you realize this isn't just one big shock, right? It isn't over. The dominoes are still falling. Well, what if we go down further? Now we're, we're looking at my risk report, report is starting to reach into territory that I hadn't even imagined we'd get to. When we first started doing the deal, by that time it was like $100 a barrel. Maybe now it had dropped something like $10 a barrel over the weekend. It was like 90 Now I'm starting to think, well, well, yeah, 80 for sure. Could it easily happen? 70 could happen. Well, what about 60 You know, 70 60 is where this deal really starts paying off. Those numbers start to appear. And I'm looking at my risk report and I'm just seeing it's just devastating. It's just devastating. If, if the market goes down that far and volatilities go up to and a few other things happen the way you would think they would, all that scenario analysis I had done before was bullshit. And I'm realizing I'm dead. I'm just completely dead. And there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do now to trade out of this. There's nothing. And it was that nothing I can do, nothing I can do that I just got that afternoon. I just got completely sick, you know, completely dizzy. Like I couldn't, my head just started spinning. I couldn't even think because it was like, you're done. Like somebody's holding two guns to your head. <laughs> and, you know, you can't move and you have no options. And um, that's the first time that that ever happened to me. And it never happened again. And as soon as the market closed that day, it closed at 2.30 or 3, whatever the oil market closed at at that time. And I just, you know, because I had to be there for that. And then I just left. I just, you know, because I knew I was my, normally I'd be there for hours analyzing, analyzing, planning for the next day. I couldn't even plan. I couldn't think. I couldn't, 
you know, it was like the world's over or, you know, I, I have no ideas you know, how to deal with this. And I just went home and went to bed. That day I lost something like 30 or 40 million dollars and the next day I did it again. And then other days it would be five or 10 and every, you know, it was just like that again and again. This is basically eight weeks of time where I just couldn't win and where I lost all the profits in the deal and I lost a lot more money and I was way, 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 way uh, underwater. You would think just by the rules of chance that something in this crisis would have worked to my benefit, but for a period of time, all seven of these major risk factors that, that um, were driving my portfolio's pain out were all killing me. Every single thing was going wrong. There was a hurricane called Ike, I think, in the Gulf at the time that shut down a bunch of refineries that reduced demand potentially for Maya. There's the shape of the volatility surface. If I get that parallel movement, I tend to lose a lot more money. Our system, the way it was booked, miscounted like one holiday. And that cost us $10 million. That's just the way it is. You can't understand that without understanding Asian options and their relative risk to European options. I could go on and on. The global economy was collapsing and people were worried about all sorts of things happening, including Mexico's economy and, and what it might mean for their, for their economy and their budget, given what was happening to oil prices. They felt the need, I guess, to tell the world that they were going to be okay. And one of the ways that they told the world that they were going to be okay, that they were going to be able to make good on their bonds, that they were going to be able to make their, their budget was to say, hey, we covered ourselves completely um, on the oil side. This official did this interview with, I think, the FT, and this news came out. So everybody's, all the banks are like, like vultures. People want to profit off that, that deal and those flows. And now that they have that information, that helped them. And it didn't help us. No matter what we did, Mexico was going to get paid. They were going to get paid on their option. That, that wasn't going to change. They, they were going to make a lot of money. The only question was how much of what we were going to write them this multi-billion dollar check for, how much was I going to be able to make on the other side from the hedges to compensate us? And that the difference between those two things is the profit or loss. We could just take a bet on Maya. If we, we now own 220 million barrels of Maya and it goes up by a dollar, we all go, woohoo, we made $220 million, or it could go, but it could go down by $10 easily and we would lose $2.2 billion. So what do you do in that case? You find other things in the market that you can sell instead of Maya that behave as similarly to Maya as, as you can, as you can find. And so that's where you do some analysis and you, you, you look at what's available in the market to buy and sell. There are major crudes that, um, that, that are bought and sold in the derivative market every day, WTI and Brent. And then there are other products that are derivatives of crude, things like fuel oil and um, you know, gasoline and so forth. And all of those move in a correlated way. When one goes up, it's likely that the other one's gonna go up. But, but the amount that they go up or down day to day, even if they all move in the same direction, uh, varies a lot. Right? So what we did is we created a, what I call a basket of these products that historically uh, behave very similar to Maya. So that if Maya went up by a dollar, this basket typically went up by about a dollar. If it went down by a dollar, the basket went down by a dollar. That way, 
let's say we made, you know, let's just pick a number. Let's say we made $50 million on a deal like this, then we've, lo- we've essentially locked that in roughly, hopefully, because Maya now goes up by a dollar. We make that $220 million on the Maya, but we lose $220 million on all the stuff we sold. And that's fine by us. We're ha- we want that. We want to negate that kind of risk. And if Maya goes down and, uh, and we lose on Maya, we make on our basket of products. And those two things cancel out. And all that we're left with is whatever we charged in the beginning for the deal, the $50 million. You're really considering all different scenarios and you've constructed a portfolio that in your theoretical world will offset either the profits or the losses of the trade you've done with the client so that in the theoretical world they line up and you're hedged and you're only going to make that extra margin that you took. The reality of course is that the theoretical world is not the real world. Once you've done the deal with Mexico and then you've done your couple hundred million barrels worth of trades on the other side to hedge it, you, um, you can't change that position. You can't, you know, my, my boss compared it to steering a, a VLCC, which is like the biggest super tanker there is in a, in a hurricane. Like, you know, the hurricane's moving, all these things are happening, but you can only like move this thing very, very slowly and very, very gradually. You can't. So abandoning the model completely would have meant like getting rid of all your hedges and starting all over again. And you can't, you're, you're stuck with all those trades. You can't trade out of them. It can't just keep going like this or it's gonna normalize. I think it can't keep going like this. I, I'm not sure. The thing we were worried about still going into 2009 was that Mexico could still play with that K factor. So the way they could have screwed us because we had played, given them insurance on the price going too low, they could just lower the price. Now you might say, well, why, if they did that, then they'd be selling their oil at a cheaper price. Well, yeah, but they don't need to sell the oil at that price, do they? They just, they could publish that number and hold on to their oil until prices rebound, you know, or, you know, do, they don't need to do physical deals based on that price if they don't want to. If they want to just scalp us for a couple billion dollars, why not? You know, January, February, March, they were each month that number comes out and we, you know, we're constantly checking Bloomberg for this number. Um, and it came out in January, it came out strong. They had actually raised the number for the first time in months. And it was like, you know, that, that was huge. Not only did we make several tens of millions of dollars on that one factor that day, but all of a sudden we just knew that no funny business was going to happen. And that meant that it could, you know, the trend, you know, it still had a long way to go to get back to normal. So if they just raised it the next couple of months, um, then we would really be out of the woods. Not only that, we were really starting to make money now. It was the biggest day of all. The K-Factor came out and it was a big move and we had a big exposure to it. And we booked something over $80 million in that one day. I mean, $80 million profit in one day is like incredible. <laughs> Even in the context of these losses, 
So, you know, it was, it was just absolutely unbelievable. We all, I took everybody out to dinner that night. We went to a Chinese restaurant in Midtown called Mr. K's. <laughs> It's just a real high-end Chinese restaurant. I'm like, I know where we got to go tonight. We're going to Mr. K's. And we kind of blew the lights out in our own way. The gods that hated me before, all of a sudden, <laughs> they decided to take pity on me. And various things started to come back into line. And that's, and that's just how it happened. So the rest, I mean, it was gradual over, over the period of months. But by that point, by February, March, we were making money so fast. One of the senior executives came over from Singapore and said, uh, word is you're making, you're printing money faster than Obama. <laughs> and he wanted to know my trade secrets. I had a lot of people who came up to me like, what's your secret? Because nobody really knows what's going on. A lot of the people in the bank and even in the business, they don't understand the trade. They don't understand that I'm just hedging. All they see is, you know, the numbers just work their way through the grapevine. So they just see that I'm making all this money and everybody all of a sudden, for this short period of time in my life, everybody thought, like, oh, you're a, you know, Bob's some kind of trading star and he's doing something really special and we, I better talk to him and find out what he knows kind of thing. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> this is just kind of making back from all the losses from before. And, uh, you know, it's on the back of a trade where, you know, a very unique situation. But ultimately, yeah, made back all the money that we lost and then a lot more. It's a famous thing. You, every year, you know you're going to go into a room and you're going to be told what you're being paid for the previous year. You know, I had learned by this point, once you've been on the street long enough, you know, you better make your opinions known. You better, you know, set a bar. Don't you, you don't just sit there and wait for news to come. So I had, like, expressed my opinion about what I should be paid and all that stuff. Um <clears throat> You know, nudging it on the high side because you always figure there's going to be some negotiation. And in that meeting, I ended up getting a number that was quite, it wasn't what I had asked for, which I didn't necessarily expect. But but I got a good number and it was a, a stunning number for me. It was a multiple of anything I had been paid before and I'd been paid very well before. So, you know, I couldn't certainly complain um, and I didn't complain. And um, you know, I, there was nobody else who was getting paid that way that year other than maybe him. Um, and then he went on to, I guess he felt the desire to justify that or explain it. <laughs> he wanted me to know that, you know, the reason that I deserve to be paid so well and then, and to be rewarded as much as I was and what he thought that I had done so well was to get the deal in the first place. I had just come out of a war, <laughs> just just got out of the trenches, and with shells dropping down, whatever, I basically like crossed a minefield with shells falling down, whatever, and I, I somehow had captured the flag, and, you know, and, you know, it felt to me at that time that, um, you know, really the thing that was, that was certainly the hardest work and took the most out of me and that I felt like I was being compensated for was the was just all that was all that stress for all those those weeks and weeks and months and months of weekends in the office and every imaginable 
thing that I came. I just had, it took so much more work to do that to deal with the deal than it took to get the deal, and I wasn't in the mood to debate anything. I was I was still kind of my head was spinning. You know, I just been paid an awful lot of money, like life changing money, and um, which is more than just the money. It's it's a combination of money. Yes, that's very it's a big deal. It'll it affects your life, but it was also just knowing. You don't know, and this is the biggest thing about bonuses that people don't talk about sometimes. It tells you what people think about you. It tells you what your boss thinks about you. It tells you what the institution thinks about you. Do they really think you did this? Or do they think it was luck? Do they think it was somebody else? They, you don't know. You don't know because there really are a lot of factors that come into these things. And there was luck in this. And people will always stroke you and tell you nice things. But when you're when it comes right down to it, the only way you really feel like you know that you've been appreciated, that, that people thought that what you did made a difference, is that number. Before I tell you how much I was on the side of angels, <laughs> which is, I provided a service and we provided a service. Like, I always compare it to like, working in a factory. We're making derivatives, other people make cars, other people make computers. We're making derivatives. People buy them, they like them, you know, they use them, they're useful. Sometimes they're not used correctly. Sometimes a car is used to, in a, you know, to run somebody over. <laughs> but if you did think of it as an industry, it's the biggest industry in the world by how much money it moves. More money moves each day in the world due to derivatives than to all other forms of trading combined, all physical markets, everything else in the world combined, by far, and throw in the stock markets, throw in the bond markets, I think. Derivatives, I'm pretty sure, swamp all of that, right? So there's all this activity, and it's not just a, a bunch of dudes like placing bets on whether the market's gonna go up or down. Almost 90% of it, so I'm gonna speak loosely, I think it's 80% are interest rate derivatives that are interest rate swaps, which are just managing risk. They're just allowing, companies and governments and other entities to not have as much risk um, and therefore not be as likely to get in a pinch or go bankrupt or whatever because of fluctuations in interest rates. This isn't a bunch of people just betting. It couldn't be that big if that were the case. It wouldn't be nearly as extensive and big and people wouldn't be paying as much as they are to banks to do this activity if it weren't working for them. Yeah, if you're going to question it, then it's not that the bankers are bad or they're doing bad things or that it's all just speculation or that it's worthless or that, you know, you're not really producing anything. That's those are two simple, easy, dumb, you know, easy to, to refute criticisms. The, the real criticism or the real concern is is one that anybody who's thoughtful about it will admit and the experts in the field will admit which is there are risks that this whole system produces. And so there's all this good, and we're and the banks are earning all the money for all this good that they're doing, same as the car companies are earning the money for the good they're doing by producing cars. But are we accounting for the risk? Are we accounting for the externality, for the financial equivalent of global climate change? Because we're not really measuring it well, because we don't know exactly how to quantify it because it's going to come up as a big crash, as it did in, in 2008, and it could be worse next time, because maybe we really, you know, and are we charging 
bangs for it in the same way that we should have a carbon tax, you know, for for that kind of pollutant. So yeah, that's that to me is the real. That's a real criticism, if you want to call it that, or a real concern. Like I, I just always had this yearning to do something that was like I don't know somehow meaningful, whatever that means. And when I studied physics, I felt like that was meaningful because it was understanding the universe and contributing to humanity's evolving understanding of the universe. And, you know, when I didn't end up doing that and ended up on Wall Street instead, I always felt sort of like, well, this is just a job and it's a fine job and I'm making stuff and, you know, and it's, it's, you know, even though it's all, even though it's derivatives and it's theoretical, for me, it was relatively concrete compared to theoretical physics. But I always thought I wanted to do something that was more meaningful in another way, not just being part of the economy, you know? And then there was the fact that the the job was just got to be a bummer. (laughs) It just got to be a bummer because the bank, the whole banking environment had gotten tougher. Um, The regulators after the crisis were now, I'll say, cracking down. I don't know if that's the right word, but... They were just scrutinizing everything that we did to the nth degree in such a way that it just wasn't as fun anymore because my whole job was to develop new products and to do new and cool stuff and solve problems for clients. And if every new product was getting so scrutinized that it was, its development was being so slowed down that, you know, you just weren't getting anything done and you're spending all so much of your time in meetings with the risk managers within the bank who deal with the regulators and you're dealing with people that don't necessarily understand what you do very well it's um, it just got to be a bummer things just started to move at a very slow pace your question about like taking potentially catastrophic risk and isn't that similar to the mortgage guys uh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it's so hard to know where to draw the line, right? Because what's, I truly could not, I could not imagine a scenario, you know, I truly didn't imagine a scenario, nor did anybody else that would cause us to even lose as much money as we did, let alone much more, which was manageable to lose a few hundred million dollars in the context of a billion dollar business in the context of a bank that made many billions of dollars in a given year is a, is a nasty bruise, but, you know, it's something you can live with. You know, the thing about trades, you know, some kinds of trades is that they have, in theory, unlimited risk. Like if you short a stock, they always say, you know, you can lose, there's no limit to what you could lose. So, you know, if the logic is don't ever do anything that has any probability at all of you know losing a massive massive amount of money then you would never ever short a stock you would never sell an option so there's some tail that you have to decide where to where to cut that tail off right there's some and and there's judgment involved in that and i you know i'll be happy to debate all day or argue or get into an intellectual discussion about how to draw that tail but that decision always has to be made either that or you're just out of the business entirely
This episode was produced by Jack Rogers and edited by Jack Rogers and Matt Fucano. Bob Henderson left Wall Street in 2012 and now writes about science for Nautilus and other publications. You can find links to his work in the show notes. Bye!